May these words of my mouth and this meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I spent some time in the library this week, our library here at St. John's. I don't know how many of you have been in there, but it's one of my favorite spaces in the cathedral complex. It's on the second floor of the parish house. It's quiet, it's beautifully appointed with comfy furniture and beautiful woodwork, and it has so many books that are fantastic and have been carefully curated and organized by volunteers and our own ever-faithful Anne Jones. You might think I spent my time in there looking at tomes devoted to theology or Christology, or some other ology. But no. In fact, I was in the newly shelved collection in the northwest corner of the library, where we now house children's books. You see, as I was reading through the lessons from this morning, I was immediately taken back to all of the fantastical images of Jonah from my own childhood, and from years of reading picture books to our children at bedtime. Images of Jonah running with his cloak billowing behind him, Jonah being tossed about on a turbulent sea and then thrown into that sea, Jonah being swallowed by the giant fish and then miraculously surviving that Piscine taxi ride to be regurgitated on the sandy shore, exactly where he needed to be to finish his commission for God. When I thought back on those stories and the wonderful illustrations accompanying them, I wondered how differently that story is told for children, how differently it's interpreted and presented than if we really terrified him as a child. Because for him, the message was that no matter what you did or where you went, you could not hide from God. And this, of course, confirmed everything that I thought about his Presbyterian upbringing. (laughs) For me, as a Florida girl growing up, I was always most enthralled with the idea of being inside the fish. Was it smelly in there? Could you feel the turbulence of the sea if you were in a fish underwater more so than if you were on top with the waves? And what kind of fish was it? Sometimes, you know, it's pictured as a whale. But being a Gulf of Mexico girl, I thought it was more likely a giant grouper. Clearly, I wasn't afraid. Nor was I having very deep theological thoughts as a child. Perhaps that says something about my Episcopal upbringing. My recollection of reading the stories to our children was that the focus was usually on obedience. And my library research this week supported that. Jonah didn't want to do what God wanted, but eventually he did it anyway. And once he obeyed, good things happened. End of story. Well, sort of. If you listened this morning, it goes a little further. There's a little more detail. I don't actually think this is just a story about obedience. And it is a wild story, unlike any other in the Bible. 
Anti-heroes abound in literature. Some familiar ones to us, Holden Caulfield, Huck Finn, Scarlett O'Hara, Jay Gatsby, Severus Snape. These characters are deeply flawed and yet often end up doing the right thing, sometimes for the wrong reasons. While they may be morally questionable, they are more complex and interesting than those characters who are perfect pillars of society. They are often much easier for us to relate to. And I think Jonah is just such a character. Biblically, we might even call him the anti-prophet. His story is unlike any other. The standard prophet in the Bible is definitely shown as being reluctant. And their reluctance is followed, though, very quickly by obedience to go where they're supposed to go and to deliver the message God gives them. And they are usually, most usually, end with destruction raining down on those who did not heed the prophet's warning. Often the prophet begs to die because their life has become so hard. And further, the prophets are usually narrators, not main characters. The book of Jonah takes that narrative formula and absolutely turns it on its head. Jonah doesn't even acknowledge God's calling. He just runs. He doesn't bother to argue or say, Ah, I'm too young, I'm too old, I stutter. He just hides. He is shown kindness by the sailors when his very presence is putting them all in jeopardy, and he's reluctant to save them. He ultimately does arrive in Nineveh, a huge city that is described so big it takes three days to walk across it. He's only one day into that walk, and he's only uttered eight words of warning of their imminent destruction, and immediately, not only do the people listen, But they and their animals don sackcloth and begin hoping and praying, fasting, and waiting for God's forgiveness. The animals, too. I just love that image. Jonah's message from God is received and followed by the king and people of Nineveh. And he is not harmed in any way for delivering that message. One would think... This was a prophet's dream come true, but not for Jonah. Because you see, all along, Jonah has known that God is merciful and compassionate, but he doesn't think the Ninevites are deserving. Not only does he think they don't deserve it, Jonah becomes angry when God does, in fact, show mercy and retracts that threat of ruin and destruction for the wicked ways of Nineveh. Jonah says, and you can't do this any other way than in a whiny voice, because it's Jonah. I knew that you were a gracious God, and merciful, and slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing. The very gifts of mercy and compassion that Jonah has received throughout all of his silly escapades he now complains about. 
He's actually angered that God is so merciful to the undeserving Ninevites. And the irony is of self-awareness and repentance. The Ninevites actively turn from their wrongdoings. They humble themselves to God and ask for forgiveness from their cruelty. And Jonah, in his hard-hearted stinginess, is angry because he judges them unworthy of compassion. So let's just take a moment and all be glad that Jonah is not in charge of things because we might all be in trouble. Because our anti-hero, our anti-prophet does good in spite of himself. He gets the message to the Ninevites in time for them to repent and escape destruction. But he is not happy about it. He is a bitter, bitter man. And he cannot, for all of his anger about God's goodness to others, see God's goodness to himself. I'm reminded of an expression my father often used. Bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Indeed, Jonah declares he would rather die than see the Ninevites saved. And that's the thing about antiheroes. They are flawed, often deeply so. And one of the reasons we can relate to them more easily than perfect cape-wearing heroes is because we, too, are flawed. We are just as contradictory and complex. We can be kind and selfless, but we can also be self-centered. We often think we deserve things that others don't. We often fail to recognize how truly undeserving we are of what we receive. We are given so much, including the gift of the care and compassion of our gracious God, who is merciful and slow to anger. So please consider with me, and friends, I am right here in this very spot. This is not me saying, oh, y'all need to pay attention. Where are we being stingy with grace and holding on to bitterness? Where in our lives do we believe that others are unworthy of the same grace we receive? Where in our lives are we being arbiters of judgment? The gospel lesson for today tells the same story. The folks who started work in the morning decide they are more deserving deserving than those who were hired at the end of the day. And that's just not the way grace works. The thread weaving through both the story of Jonah and the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, is that we are to do our work, and we are to let God do God's work. And when we can, we should do all in our might to align our wills with God's will and see others as God sees them so that we can all rejoice in a gracious God who is merciful who is slow to anger, 
who is abounding in steadfast love. Amen.